Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Wendy and I are delighted to be joined today by Jag Sharma, a senior marketer who has worked across numerous brands, including Mondelez, HSBC, and Nissan Infinity. So welcome, Jag. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for having me. And Jag, our paths first crossed at HSBC when you were client side and working with us as your social agency. But I understand that we actually have Boris Johnson to thank uh, for you getting into social media in the first place. Uh, Is that right? It it would be great to hear how you fell into social media. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson is is partly responsible uh, for this. But I suppose the main ingredients that got me into social were curiosity, excitement, and and the uncertainty of it all. So where, where Boris comes into play was that I was working at a Danish environmental organization in their London office, and I was looking after uh, their marketing for the Southeast. And this was at about 2009. Uh, and they asked me to look after this new thing that they had, that they, they'd set up and they didn't, you know, they didn't know what to do with it. And it was Twitter. And okay, so they handed me the keys to their Twitter account. Uh, I had complete free reign. No one internally in the company was interested in what we were doing uh, on on the platform. And so um, amongst others, I followed Boris Johnson and I waited patiently for him to tweet about environmental issues in London. I waited patiently, waited patiently. And then eventually he did uh, tweet about environmental issues and I pounced. (laughs) I, I had a couple of replies ready based on whatever topic he was going to go for. And I pounced and I replied on it. And soon after he replied and there was some back and forth. And then he encouraged us to go and meet with him. And yes, so from from one tweet, I managed to essentially get us a meeting with the mayor of London. And in turn, that got uh, this Danish company I was at uh, a chance for a government contract. And it was at that moment... I realized that this was big stakes, that this social media thing wasn't some cute add-on or sideshow to mainstream marketing communications, but potentially the single biggest shift in how we as human beings communicate. And this is where the curiosity and the uncertainty took over. Because I remember thinking this at the time, When the guy or girl who invented the first drawing board got it wrong, what did they go back to? And that's what excited me about social media at that point, you know, 2009, 2010, because it was really this, just this whole playground of companies and brands and people trying things and gaining traction at scale uh, with a lot of ease, you know, organic growth was 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 very possible back then, and yeah, that's what social media was twelve years ago. It was just reaching at scale. Um, yet there were very few practitioners, and this is what I wanted to do. 
I wanted to treat it as a vocation and I wanted to treat it with respect. The company I was at, the the Danish environmental company, they were, you know, they were not interested in uh, a, a full-time person focused um, pretty much on, on solely on social. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So I, I started to look for that. Um, I wanted to look for companies that were, were, were looking for that role and um you know i tried and i, I applied and and I, and i really went for it but no one would employ me uh and i always felt when i walked into interviews that people were expecting someone who looked straight out of shoreditch and and i looked anything but that so i ended up doing it for free uh, i offered my services to a publishing house for free for three days a week i was managing their entire social media and i was doing that three days a week for free And then the other four days a week, I was working on the open top sightseeing buses in London. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't be more different, really, could it? I was doing that just to scrape by. And, and actually, it's a job that I used to do when I was when I was younger in, in my home city. So uh, I did that four days a week. But in, in retrospect, when I look back at it, it was actually quite dark days because I had no disposable income. I was scraping by. I did nothing of fun. You know, I did this for four months. Uh, I had no personal time. I had no disposable income. And the little free time I did have, I was trying to learn more about social media and apply for jobs. Um, and this was at a time when there weren't things like Facebook blueprint around yeah. to, to help you learn. You had to you had to really, really do, do it on, on your own. But it led to good things. I, I, I was approached by, by Mondelez to get my first full-time paying job in social. I never applied for the job at Mondelez. I was approached uh, uh, by them. So it does show that if you're willing, if you really want to go for something, and if you're willing to sacrifice, uh, and if you can sacrifice, then it's, it's worth going for it because it, it can lead to good things. Well, you were obviously doing something right on social that they they spotted you. So it was such an experimental time as well. I think that it paints a lovely picture. Mm-hmm. More recently, uh, your career has actually taken you to Hong Kong, hasn't mm-hmm. it? Can you tell us a bit more about uh, perhaps the approach to social there, how it how it differs to what you were used to? There's so much I could say about Hong Kong. So I was at HSBC and I was very happy. I had zero plans to leave. And then out of the blue, this company called Infinity, who were the luxury arm of, of Nissan Motor Company, contacted me directly and asked if I'd be interested to make the jump and go and work for them in Hong Kong, in their global headquarters. So I went from a regional role for HSBC to a global role for a, a, a challenger luxury brand looking after 26 countries, including mainland China. Hong Kong is... Possibly it's one of, if not the most densely populated place on earth. There are ramifications to that from a society and cultural perspective that then impacts digital. So if it's the most densely populated place on earth, living quarters, apartments are small, and many don't even contain proper kitchens. They have kitchenettes. So the knock-on effect is that people spend more time outside of their home. So things like same day or next day Amazon style deliveries that we're uh, more familiar with in in the UK are not as common in Hong Kong because people are out and about more. Yeah. And and marketing 
like out-of-home billboard ads, trade marketing, ads in shopping malls. These are still a big deal. Uh, for any brand trading in, in Hong Kong, they, they, they're still probably, I would say they're about probably 10, 12 years behind in, in that respect. And then how that affects social is that social media is still, a, it's still a cute add-on to mainstream marketing. Now, the current global situation with, with the virus has, has changed that for them. And now, all of a sudden, you see this scramble in Hong Kong for digital talent. However, it's the same scramble that happened in the UK 10 or so years ago. And that scramble was that, you know, these marketing departments, they want digital talent, but rather than train up or move on the old guard of their marketing teams, they want to bring in digital talent at cut price. Mm. They're still thinking that it's a cute add-on that you can bake into what you're currently doing. So from a digital and social perspective, uh, Hong Kong, I would say, Hong Kong specifically is behind. However, just across the border into mainland China, it's, it's completely the opposite way. And, and that's the exciting part. You know, there's lots of exciting things going on in China. Social media in China is much more of a sales channel than it is internationally. Yes, we do think of Facebook as a sales opportunity, but it's more so seen as, as an awareness channel. I would say the two biggest elements in China social media are key opinion leaders. Uh, we know them as influencers and live streaming for the purposes of selling. You know, to, to get an understanding of why live streaming and, and, and KOLs are, are, are such, such a big deal in, in China. 70% of Gen Z consumers in mainland China prefer buying products and services directly within social media compared to just 40% uh, average internationally. 78% of Chinese people surveyed in 2018 said that they believed in recommendations from KOLs or celebrities. And of the 65 billion US dollars that was spent online in China in 2019, 17 billion of it came from purchases made through KOLs. So that's a quarter of all online purchases. So how did KOLs get so big? Well, there's three key reasons. So first of all, in China, People trust people more than companies. There have been so many scandals in China involving trusted brands. There was a baby, a baby milk powder scandal where the ingredients weren't as advertised and babies were getting sick. High price alcohol is often uh, counterfeit and people have died in mainland China from drinking what they thought was an expensive bottle of scotch whiskey but turned out to be something else. But it's not just about trust. The, the advertising options within China social media are often much more limited than they are in the rest of the world. The targeting options are sometimes not as good as they are in the West, and the premium ad slots uh, can be super pricey. So I'm not talking about Twitter first view pricey. I'm talking about out-of-home billboard in the center of town pricey. I mean, that's how, that's how pricey some of these WeChat... Uh, premium placement ads uh, are in, in China. 
And the third reason why KOLs are, are so big in China is that there's better integration between influencer posts and e-commerce. You have tremendous e-commerce and live streaming integration through throughout the platforms uh, on China. So, for example, you can be live streaming on Weibo, and there's nice integration to your Tmall account. Tmall is is an online shopping uh, platform there. Much more integration to to sell directly between those two platforms. So, if you're running social media in China, then KOL marketing is a super key element. You know, yeah. I've managed I've managed teams of full time staff whose job is to just manage micro KOLs, and then we'd often use an agency for the macro KOLs. And just to get an, a, a real flavor of the opportunity with KOLs, Becky Lee, she's one of China's original bloggers. She started yeah. in 2014. Today, she employs over a hundred people and runs several social accounts in China. Minnie Cooper partnered with Becky Lee. Becky created her own limited edition mini in China with a special color paint. Yeah. There were only 100 cars available. And on launch of this car via her social channels, all of them sold out within four minutes. Wow. Oh 42,000 US dollars per car, 100 sold out in four minutes. That's $4.2 million of revenue through partnering with one KOL. And, and, and all she was was a blogger in 2014. And l- look at how far she's come. In w- where I worked recently, we were partnering with a, a chap called Austin Lee. And in, in mainland China, he's known as uh, the Lipstick King. Mm-hmm. So many women and men buying beauty products in China, they hang off this man's every word. We partnered with Austin. He runs regular live streaming once a week, usually on a weekend, and his live streaming lasts for several hours at a time. A brand would pay for just a 15-minute slot, and he'll demo the product, he'll usually wear or try the product, and then offers some kind of promotion for buying through his e-commerce links. And just by using him, brands can see their sales increase that week three, four, five, fivefold just wow. by using him. And and that's the impact of of partnering uh, with these KOLs and the and these live streamers in in China. Perhaps it's a window into how things could could be here, but um, the difference between China social media and and, and non China social media, I think the difference is so great now that I don't, I just see them staying on different paths. I don't mm. see them becoming one path because when we look at influencers in the West they're actually starting to lose credibility. I mean, you know, how many more influencers can we see in Dubai that are recommending whatever kind of product and we just don't buy into it anymore? I I think in in the West, we we have this, there's this whole different approach to data privacy and then the the society view on privacy. In China, they've never ever grown up or had privacy. So their understanding of privacy is... It's kind of like they, they understand the theory of privacy, but they don't really understand the the practice of it or, or what that means or the knock-on effects. And, and I've seen that. We've had, I'll give an example. We've had mainland Chinese companies build games for us, online games. And then when it came down to figuring out 
the privacy and what we're going to ask for people up front. They just didn't know how to handle that. And then the mm-hmm. data we were collecting was perhaps not aligned to what we were asking at the beginning. We were collecting too much data on, on some aspects. Mm-hmm. We'd have to pull the game. And so we, what we learned was just this attitude to, to, to privacy in China. It just isn't there. And so I, I just, I can't, I can't see, I can't see there, there being commonality or, or the, or, you know, between international and China social media, I think they'll, they'll grow further apart. Right. Yeah. It will be interesting to see what kind of cuts through. I don't know if this makes me weird, but I'm actually really championing the, the kind of virtual influencers um, just because I find the area so fascinating to be able to create a character uh, that doesn't actually exist but becomes an, an influencer in its own right and people know that but um, because I'm always sort of wary of crisis management for brands as well I, I find it as a good way to to kind of manage the uh, the influencer but as I said that might make me just a bit weird <laughs> well no I think there's it, there's obviously a, a growing a growing desire for them I think there was what was the original one called Lil, Lil McQuella or but yeah I it's it's interesting i mean i mean they're more they're more uh, reliable than a than a real human they're not going to perhaps be involved in any scandals <laughs> let's go back a little bit now and talk about what led up to all of this for you um and we'll start with jag the child so what were you like when you were little my memory of of what i was like when i was little um i th- i was very happy uh i think uh, i think i had a very nice childhood i was very happy I had thoroughly enjoyed it. I had got to do some fun things. Uh, when I was a kid that I didn't, you know, as, as a kid used to accept that they're normal. So we lived, uh, we lived next door to um, one of the creators of Fireman Sam and Super Ted. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was our neighbor. So when I was um, still just before primary school, the wife of this creator of, of Fireman Sam and Super Ted, she used to look after me when my mum was at work for a short time. And so I have very vague recollections of just seeing, you know, like an artist's uh, drawing board area and and sketches out of Super Ted and, and stuff like that. A very vague recollection of that. But I just thought it was normal because, you know, I was a, I was a kid. I was a BBC press packer. So for Newsround, I got to go and interview Philip Schofield, uh, in 1992, I was I was nine. I got to interview him because he won Best Dressed Man of the Year, and I was taken to the NEC in Birmingham. And then I got to interview him, and then that went into uh, the BBC Children's Magazine. I, th- I know my mum has a copy of it um, somewhere. So on that side of it, I think I had a really great childhood. But then when I, as I got older and I, I'd hear stories from my parents and my sister, I was like, oh, okay, okay. Because the, the, the other facts, the other side of it is um, I was the, in, when I joined my primary school, I was the only minority in my primary school. And when uh, my parents replay stories back to me of things that happened, I was like, oh, yeah, that did happen. And oh, yeah, this did happen as well. And so it's 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 interesting, and I think when you are raised by parents that were not born in the UK and come from a different uh, ethnic background, uh, I think you're raised to have a thicker skin and to right. 
have more of a, a perhaps a water water off a duck's back uh, approach to things. You know, kids kids are kids, and kids can say things and do things that uh, that are that, that are quite quite bad. But then you you have to uh, you have to stand up for yourself. And it wasn't until I was older and I was reminded about certain things, I was like, oh yeah. And then you start to think, okay, well, yeah, okay, I, I guess kids are resilient, and you do have you do as a kid you do probably focus more on the positives mm-hmm. so yes i think that was that was what i was like as a as a child i'll say one other thing as a kid it's a bit of a dark story but i think it 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 highlights i think being raised to have a, a bit of a thick skin and to to stand up for yourself i must have been about 7 years old and we had a a, a teacher uh in primary school and basically we were all set this creative writing task in school and we were told right go and sit down and write one page about what you'd like to be when you grow up and uh, I wanted to be a a ghostbuster (laughs) I wrote this one page of when I grow up I want to be a ghostbuster and the reasons why I go up and I show it to the teacher you know seven years old and he looks at it and he just starts shouting at me at the top of his voice. And he was really tall, a really tall, very tall, powerful, powerful man. And he's just shouted at me and everyone in the class stopped what they were, they were doing and they were looking. And he was like, you, a, a Ghostbuster isn't even a thing. If you want to be a joke, at least pick something that's real. And then he shoves the book back in my hand and says, go and write that you want to be a game show host. At least that's a real joke, right? And I'm crying, I'm crying, I'm crying. And I go and I sit down and my, the tears are coming down onto my paper. And then I started writing, when I grew up, I want to be a game show host. And then I stopped and I was like, no, I want to be a Ghostbuster. <laughs> and I finished the second page of, you know, why I wanted to be a Ghostbuster. And then I got up and I queued back up. And I was super nervous as the queue as I got closer and closer to the teacher. And then I showed him and I could barely get the words out of my mouth. And I said, no, I, like, I really want to be a Ghostbuster. So I think having having parents that bring you up to have a thick skin and to 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 speak up for yourself when when you know things are wrong, I think that's that's super helpful and then it helps you move forward positively. Absolutely, and and I wonder if that resilience that your parents help you to build up is what helped you to get you know survive that period where you're living on two days a week's worth of open top bus. Yeah, no, no completely. <laughs> And so with that, you said that you'd worked on the open top buses before as well. Was that your first job? So that was my second job. So my, my first job, I was working for a convenience store uh, called Spa for uh, probably about three or four months. And then my mother saw advertised in the newspaper that the sightseeing buses in Cardiff were looking for staff and my mum was like, oh, you'd like that. That could be a fun thing to do. And yeah, I was, I was 18 and it was, I just had finished high school and I was waiting to start uh, university. And yeah, I just went, I just went and went, walk, literally walked up to the main bus stop where the sightseeing buses in Cardiff operate from. And I just asked about the job and I was, I was, I was employed on the spot. Uh, super fun like super fun i don't know if you, if you ever if you ever find that you want to have a, a second job for fun of just meeting tourists or in, in the case of the sightseeing buses in wales it was less tourists and more more retired people 
uh, within the UK that kind of, okay, they're retired and now they want to go and travel around the UK. And it was great. You know, I, I mostly sold uh, tickets on the street um, and there were two companies. And so we had to compete and uh, I was the best, I was the best um, salesperson they had. And in the end, they promoted me to, to manage the, the rest of the sales team. And it's really, it was just fun. Like it's not, it's because even though there's, there's, there's a competitor and then there's, you know, the competitor might come in and, you know, say that their tour is better and they offer a better price. It's really about people. People just want to, they want to have a fun day out. They might want, they want to see a bit of the city and, you know, you can offer that to them. You know, I remember I always had a couple of cheeky lines that I would use. If it's a retired couple, you would say, okay, the price for adults is this, and then the price for seniors and students is this. So, so a slight reduction. And then senior citizens, they love to straight away interrupt you and say, oh, I'm a senior citizen. And so if it's, if it's a couple, uh, say a husband and a wife, and they're, they're both clearly senior citizens, when they say that, you then turn to the, the lady and you'll say, I'm sorry, but there's no way you're a senior citizen. <laughs> <laughs> you, you look too young you know then the, the lady would be like oh you know should i get out my bus pass i can show you or should i get out my id i can show you and then the husband will usually say something similar so the, the husband will say oh shall i get my id out as well and then you would say to the husband oh no no sir i can i can tell that you're a <laughs> there's, there's no, no issue there and then, and then, as the the lady is looking for her ID, you 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 stop her and you say, "Listen, don't, I don't need to see your ID, but perhaps perhaps I can put you through as a student as well. It's the same price." And then they just get so they get so <laughs> flattered, and it doesn't even matter if the competitor comes along and undercuts you; it doesn't matter. You've, you've no. already won them. So I used to, I used Absolutely. to absolutely love love doing doing that job, and I and I did it during the time when. They closed down Wembley Stadium because they were rebuilding it. So oh, everything yeah. that was going on in Wembley Stadium then went to the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. So we had a ton of just tourists and then sports fans. And it was honestly, it was the most fun I ever had. So that's why I went back to it um, in, in, in in London as well. Uh, and I, I'd go, honestly, I'd go back to it again. If Apple successfully ends up destroying Facebook and then you know, the whole industry is shut down and I have nothing else to do. I, I would honestly go back to the sightseeing buses in, in London. Combine social media on a bus somehow yes. and start a new company. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what's the worst job you've ever had? Oh, I would say that the worst job I've had, I was working in IT sales and I did it for about a year. And so we were selling kind of these big server units. So the example being if, if, one of my clients was a national newspaper and they would need their entire server room uh, refitted, redone, new servers. That's that's the kind of kind of sales and, and job I was doing. What I didn't like about the job was that it was very it was just very cliche boiler room sales environment. And the, the type of humans that worked there were much more interested in the car that they drove and the watch on their hand than they were about the clients that they serviced and actually understanding the technology that they sold um, I was desperately trying to learn about the technology that we were selling and there was just little care and little information and it just it wasn't the right environment for me and also I'm you know I'm not a 
I'm not a hard sales type person in, in that respect. So that was really tough to go into every day. A slog. Thinking, I mean, I'm sure you've worked with lots of amazing people, but are there any that you can think of particularly who influenced your career? So I think there are good and bad people influenced my career. So when I when I talk about the you know the, the the sales job I was in the IT sales job you know there were some bad managers there that I decided okay I never want to be never want to be like like these people and I realized early on in my career okay this is not these are the people I don't want to be like and then then I've had some great managers at Mondelez and and HSBC in particular I think I think HSBC for whatever reason and Mondelez they, they managed to generally create an environment of quite strong and fair managers and leaders and and that's who who I wanted wanted to be like and also not just because I'm looking at her right now but also Tamara is is a tremendous inspiration as well to anyone because I, I always think I look to people that they either manage people or they manage their teams or they manage their company in a strong but fair way mm. and I think that's that's how that's how I'd like to be. Oh, thank you, Jack. Do you need to teach you? <laughs> Actually, talking of the, the brands that you've worked with, you have worked with some incredible brands. Choosing any that you like, what was the biggest impact on a brand that you're proud of? Proving that social media can uplift on brand awareness, consideration, and sales all in one campaign. So we have a problem in automotive and it's a problem that i don't think will go away for a long time and it's a problem of convincing local markets that they don't need to run tv ads in order to grow sales because local markets are often controlled by a couple of the larger dealer groups who have a very traditional outlook on on marketing and so if the owners of those dealer networks don't see the ads running when they're tucked up in bed at night watching TV, then they don't believe in their head that the, that the marketing teams or the head office are doing a, a good job. So this proved quite challenging at Infinity. And we noticed our local marketing colleagues would often lie down and take the easy route and who who can blame them because it's it's easy just to agree with your powerful dealer network and just put your marketing spend on tv ads and then no one will say that you're doing a bad job and uh you know everyone can go home and and rest easy but i really wanted to show that you know this and more could be achieved through digital and social media in particular so we took a small but promising market in South Korea. We worked with the local team in Korea. We turned off all other advertising during a six-week window. And in that window, we only ran uh, ads on Facebook and Instagram. We partnered with Facebook and Nielsen to run a conversion lift study and a brand lift study. We created social media content uh, with our content agency that was designed to maximize brand recognition, product details, and then offer up a chance to sign up for a test drive. We didn't concern ourselves with creating content 
that we thought was going to get us more likes or followers. Our content for this purpose was entirely business driving focused. And it worked. It, it worked. Uh, and I knew it was going to work. All, all I needed was the opportunity to test it out. You know, no other ads live at the time, no TV, no out of home, no nothing, just social media ads. And the results were that we got a 14 point lift in brand recall. We had three times increase in web traffic to the Infinity South Korea website. We had five times more sales leads, so five times more test drive signups than we did in any other period for the previous 12 months. And we'd overachieved. So at the end of that quarter, we'd overachieved on our sales target by 14.7%. And that was just the start of it for the team in Korea. Because unlike legacy media, this campaign not only improved uh, the brand recognition and sales, but it also gave the career team a CRM pool that they could retarget and build on for future campaigns. So since then, the team have diverted the majority of their marketing spend into social media um, because there's that undeniable proof uh, that social uh, equals sales. And how great to have been sort of trusted to, to be so experimental and to sort of, you know, prove that point as well. That's that's a, a great case study. Yes, definitely. And the, the funny thing is, though, during the whole thing, the pressure just mounts and mounts and mounts. So, you know, you'd hear from the career MD, well, if this doesn't work, then blah, 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 it's on your head. And, you know, I'm going to report back that we didn't hit our quarter because of you. And there's always people that don't believe, don't believe, don't believe. And then they feedback on the content and then before it goes live and they, they're thinking of it from a, a TVC point of view. And then you really have to be willing to take take the responsibility on your shoulders much more than perhaps other marketing colleagues have to. I, I, I don't see people that are used to running TV ads or, or you know, above the line work having to really put themselves out there and say, okay, yes, if, if this fails, it's all on me. You must have been relieved when those results came in. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've known each other for a while, so you know that um, at The Social Element, we're obsessed with helping brands have a, a genuine human connection with their consumers. How, again, thinking about any brand, have you managed to create connections between your brand and the customers? For me... Uh, I would say the work that I did with HSBC and Pride in 2017. So it's it's usually so cliche when brands get involved with Pride and LGBT rights. They'll do something colorful and they'll sometimes play on stereotypes. And so what I wanted to do, and, and I, I was waiting and waiting and waiting for the chance, was that I wanted to highlight the story of Pride but also acknowledge that, yes, progress has been made, but that the journey continues. I was so happy when I, when HSBC let me run the Pride campaign that I briefed the uh, creative agency uh, on, the, the I think, the 1st or 2nd of February that year. So I really wanted mm -hmm. uh, to, to, get, to get ahead. We went through tons and tons of, of, of ideas because I, I really wanted to make this uh, an emotive piece that hit home. 
and actually my target audience was not just people in the LGBT community. It was, this was something that everyone needed to see Mm -hmm. because, you know, LGBT rights isn't for LGBT people. It's for all people. So the idea we went with in the end was that we found one of the original founders of the original gay pride parade in 1972. It was a chap called uh, Andrew Lumsden who founded Gay News in 1971. And then he was on the first march in 72. And we also found someone that had only gone to pride for the first time recently, a transgender man uh, in his twenties. He's a, a very popular YouTuber and he'd only gone to his first Pride March the year before. Uh, the, the output from this, and it's still it's still available on YouTube if you search uh, HSBC with Pride, we created a, a three-minute emotional story highlighting both of their journeys. So if you imagine Andrew Lumsden's journey in 1971-1972 going on the first Pride March, imagine the, the nervousness of it, you know, his, his stories of you know, the, the abuse they got and, you know, the, the, you know, it was very common for him and people like him to get beaten up by the police for, for no reason. So imagine going out on the first March and helping organize the first March. Imagine how nervous that would be. You, you literally could be fearing for your life just to go and stand up and say that, you know, uh, I, I'm here and, you know, I, I, I should be counted and I should have a voice just to, just to be able, just to do that. And then for Jamie Rains, the, the transgender man, for, for him as well, uh, in 2016, 2017, it's, it's tough. And so what, what we managed to do with these two stories was, yes, yes, okay, there has been progress, and, but the, the march continues, the, the journey continues. And uh, we put it out uh, on Snapchat, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, it was showcased on Twitter that year as a standout campaign. It helped us win um, best financial services, social media from the drum. But beyond all the recognition from Twitter and the awards from the the, the drum, it it created it created connection and it created chatter and shareability uh, on social media. And that's what what I wanted to achieve. I, I wanted people that are perhaps not in the LGBTQ community talking about this content and getting some kind of understanding about the challenges that people are facing. Yeah, yeah. that's a, a wonderful campaign. And yeah, hats off to you. I think HSBC have been very strong in that area. Mm, mm. How would you define your leadership style, Jag? So uh still i'm still because i'm i'm gonna admit uh a a definite flaw of mine here so my leadership style is mostly pace setting with a sprinkling of 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 laissez-faire so do as i do pace setting so i'm i'm very much a a hands-on practitioner um i don't think any task is beneath me like, sure, there are tasks that I like to do less of, you know, like I like to do less of uh, finance uh, related work, but I'd still like to be able to know how much uh, of hands-on time and then how hands-on experience of doing something and doing it well. And then in turn, hopefully setting the pace and expectations of what good looks like to me. 
you know, uh, even even recently where I've been working, I I still I still know how to set up Facebook ads, even though I don't need to do it. I still know how to set up Facebook ads because there's the odd thing that might change here or there, and it's good to check in once in a while and and to see how to do it. I can set up self serve TikTok ads. I don't need to, but it's good for me to know because if I'm asking people in my team to do it, I, I feel that I should know. And then I should know that, okay, to do it properly, it takes time. It takes th this amount of time. However, I recognize the challenges to this approach of, of leadership. And I had this feedback at HSBC in, in my final year there, uh, uh, end of year review from a, a junior member of the team. They said that they felt uh, a heavy weight on their shoulders from the pace that I was setting. To combat that and recognizing that no one's perfect, uh, the great thing about life is that you always have chance to improve. So I mix my pace setting style with a, 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 a significant chunk of, of a laissez-faire approach. So once I know that, that a person is strong, what they're strong at, and I can fully entrust them and leave them to it, then it's theirs. It's completely theirs. They run the show. They run the project. I don't want to know the detail of how they set this up or how they set that up. Uh, I'll just check in on progress on, on our on our weekly or, or bi-weekly catch-ups. So still, I think, I think it will always develop as well. I think uh, I don't think my leadership style will stay uh, as pace setting and and laissez-faire. I think with time it will change again, you know. And I, as I as I hope to get more senior, perhaps it will be less pace setting because I I won't have the time to get in the detail of of absolutely everything. So I won't know how long it takes to do X or Y. So I think naturally uh, leadership styles uh, will, will change over time. Yeah, well, we're all works in progress, right? Mm, no, very much so. So what have you learned in the pandemic about culture and leading teams remotely? So I've worked in two organizations during this pandemic. Uh, so the, the virus came earlier in, in Hong Kong than it, than it did um, to most of the rest of the world. A key learning that I will definitely take forward beyond COVID is that even if some of the team are in the office, have everyone dialed in individually on Zoom or BlueJeans yeah. or whatever you use. And the reason for this is because if the ones in the office dial in together from one device in one meeting room, then they will end up having the advantage of being in the room together, the benefit of the nonverbal communication amongst themselves as, as they're together face to face and they're not dialed in. And then they end up just dominating the conversation. So I think we need to embrace flexible working, everyone dialing individually. I'm looking forward to this new world of, of after the virus because I do think it's kicked things forward in terms of flexible working and allowing and trusting employees to work uh, more of their own schedule and work from home. And yeah, it's, I think it's it, a lot of good will come from this. Yeah, I think so many companies are going to have to work on that hybrid model to get it right. You're, you're absolutely it's, right. Yeah, it's very easy to feel excluded if you're the one dialing in remotely and you're talking to a room of people who are just having little side conversations. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's, it needs work. So we're going to move on to the last part of the podcast now, which is a bit of a 
quick fire round where we'll ask some more uh, personal questions. I hope that's okay, Jack. So we'll start with what's your guilty pleasure? Uh, whiskey. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, nice. I live five minutes walk from a really nice distillery. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Which distillery? It's Glengarry, it's called. And Geary is spelled G-A-R-I-O-C-H. And it's lovely. Um, so, yeah, for me, um, yeah, whiskey, uh, uh, Glenroth's Vintage Reserve Speyside Single Malt. That is my absolute, when I when I really feel like I deserve it, I will go for that. But I'm not a whiskey, but equally, I'm not a whiskey snob. So mm-hmm. I have plenty of Jack Daniels in, in, my, in my cupboard as well. I've been to the Jack Daniels distillery. Yes, that's my guilty pleasure. But within reason, within reason. Of course, drink responsibly. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from quaffing nice whiskey, what's your idea of uh, the perfect weekend? So I know know a lot of people don't do New Year's resolutions, but I guess I'm one of these silly folk that still try to have one. So my, I've had this issue for years and it, it goes back to definitely from HSBC where I don't sleep enough. I'm one of these people that I tend to work better at night and then I end up just not sleeping enough. And so my my only New Year's resolution was that I was going to promise that I was going to sleep more. So in terms of the perfect weekend, I, I definitely get some extra sleep now because I just realized that it's it's I was getting so little sleep. Like I was getting an average of for many years, I was getting an average of about four hours. And really the impact it has on the body, the mind, uh, the mood, you know, uh, everything. And so my idea of a weekend is to get some extra sleep. And if I'm in Hong Kong, I love to go to any bar that's quite high up and, and has a good view mm-hmm. just because it's a nice feeling. I, I like I like that sort of thing. Love it. And if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Whatever Eleven has in Stranger yes. Things, I want those superpowers. I definitely because in in every element of it, because they're not superpowers that she can turn on so easily. Because I think that's the scary thing. If you have a superpower like like Superman and you can turn on your superpowers very easily, then I think there's a there's a real chance that you'd abuse those powers. Whereas with Eleven, she really has to think hard and try hard. And it also takes energy away from her and is, is quite detrimental to her. And, you know, she gets nosebleeds and stuff. So she really only uses her powers when she has to. And I love those powers. <laughs> That's deep. I like that. <laughs> We've had such a lovely time talking to you. But is there anything that you wish that we had asked you or any closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I was hoping we'd get a chance to speak about um, and where we think social media is heading. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I think we're heading to a, a more fragmented social media world and potentially the rise of the subscription model. Mm-hmm. And there are so many elements of this. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, James Callaghan. He was a prime minister in, of the UK in the 70s. He, he famously said, um, a lie can be halfway around the world before <laughs> the truth has got its boots on. And we see that with social media, that um, because now everyone is essentially a publisher and everyone can be a news outlet, gone are the days of when it was a few media powerhouses 
that gave their own biased view. Now it's that everyone can have their own view and lens on the world. And truth is really under attack, like it's never been before. And we have to recognize that social media has played a part in this. And people are starting to distrust social media in general and feel disappointed with, you know, how they're seeing the social media platforms respond to, you know, these challenges to to truth. Apple's war on keeping privacy. iOS changes are coming that are going to impact how much data Facebook can collect on us. You know, I had a call with um, someone I know at Facebook just, just two weeks ago, and they are so concerned because they don't even know how much this is going to weaken Facebook and to what degree this is going to affect Facebook. But it's really going to limit two things for Facebook, the data that Facebook can collect on people, and then in turn, the data that they can provide to the real customers of Facebook, the advertisers. You know, it's been such a luxury as a brand that advertises on Facebook, the amount of data you can get back from them. And it used to be even more. Um, But now I think it's under real threat. Right-wing activists, uh, they feel that traditional social media channels are favoring the left. So they themselves are opting out and they're moving to more obscure social networks. Societies that worry about their governments tracking them, whether it's the case or not that their governments are tracking them, they're moving to other social networks. And then we've also got, you know, other the rise of other social networks for various other reasons. Clubhouse, audio only, uh, has already got some celebrities on there. So that's an interesting one as well. So I think that's going to contribute to this fragmentation of social media. Data privacy, it's another issue. And when we saw that just literally uh, last month with WhatsApp changing their data privacy policy. And then, you know, there's even things like, you know, the, 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 an awakening of what social media does to us. So, you know, we have documentaries like The Social Dilemma that have made people uh, believe that social, you know, that social media does things to us. Uh, gradual changes in behavior, dopamine hits, being primed for certain ads, voter suppression. It's, it's a fact. Voter suppression and Cambridge Analytica, the, the Brexit vote was the testbed for the 2016 US general election. It's not about getting people to vote a certain way. It's convincing people that their vote doesn't make a difference or their vote doesn't matter or the person they believe in isn't worth bothering uh, voting for. So when you, when you add all of this up, you know, it, it leads to more fragmentation, you know, and, and people will be much more particular about which platforms they use. And I think there's also an outside chance, but perhaps a growing likelihood that we could see a potential Netflix style subscription Mm -hmm. model for an ad free data tracking free version of social media. You you pay a monthly fee and they are not going to, you know, harvest your data. They're not going to serve you with ads. They're not going to manipulate you because they're already getting the subscription fee uh, from you. It's really interesting because I definitely um, uh, agree with you on the, the fact that things have been divided so much. And we've seen that in society and it's it's connected to how they identify with certain social media platforms. For example, as you said, some people are leaving platforms because they consider it too left wing. It, it worries me because of society of kind of picking your team and sticking to it. It's very divisive. Uh, we've seen that in politics. We've seen that in all sorts of areas. You know, 
in sports, it's been that's the way it's been, but it that's kind of it was left on the sport ground. The fact that it's now that you can kind of pick your identity and, and then become very aggressive to the other side is something that we've been seeing playing out on social media. I hope that will change. And I have because one of the the joys of social media is that it was for everyone and it was more you'd have your different communities and different personalities, but ultimately you you weren't rejected from a platform because of who you were. So it, it feels like that is a dangerous route for us to go down. And I hope that marketers can do their bit to not play into these stereotypes or the easy case of your left or your right or your this or your that. I am an eternal optimist and I, I love human behavior. Something that has given me joy is some of the new platforms coming through. I mean, we're, we're massive TikTok fans at, uh, at The Social Element, but personally, I've been super excited about Clubhouse because, I mean, I'm, I'm so new to it and I've been experimenting and going into different rooms. But funny enough, there's something, because it is audio only, I think the behavior is slightly different. There is some bad behavior, don't get me wrong, because that's what happens. You know, I've been in this industry for 20 years or whatever. So I know that, you know, given a new social media space, people behave badly. But there's something quite special about the fact that people are discovering a new platform and getting excited about it. And I haven't seen that kind of excitement since, you know, South by Southwest, when people get excited about the launch of Twitter or the launch of... Uh, you know, whatever was the latest thing then. So I feel like there hasn't been much excitement for new platforms. And it's reminded me of why why I love social media so so much, because of the curiosity and the fact that you just, you give someone a different platform and, it, and then you see behavior changes. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited for the future, but really hoping that as a society, we can sort, sort ourselves out, quite frankly. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.